The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Nunberg, and I'm the guiding teacher here. And we've been looking now for the last six weeks or so at a particular set of teachings called the Seven Factors of Awakening. For those who want more of a reference, you can get a hold of Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, a Practical Guide to Awakening. We've been slowly going through this book. We're a little bit more than halfway through now on chapter 27, actually chapter 28 this week. And... Uh, the middle part of this book, it's a, a book on the what's called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, or the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness. And the last of those four foundations have to do with the particular categories of experience. So one way to categorize our experience are the seven qualities or the seven mental factors that support insight that support awakening. And mindfulness, of course, is the first of these seven factors, and it's mindfulness that helps us have a sense, like whether any of the other six factors are there or not, and whether the energizing factors are in balance with the tranquilizing factors. So we've been talking about this the last couple weeks now, and we'll probably continue for another couple weeks moving through each of the factors and having a sense of how they work together as a sequence, really. But don't hold to that idea that it's a se- sequence. It's not just a sequence, but it's they're easy to understand as a sequence. So mindfulness, again, just to review, mindfulness is this particular capacity or talent of the mind. We have to develop it. So for most of us, It's not strongly developed, but when we develop it, it's this quality of the mind or heart that can keep the present moment in mind. So it's really about not forgetting it's like this now. And you can just, this, it's always good. I know we've, many of us have been doing this a long time, 32 years, some of you even as long as me, practicing mindfulness, but it's not easy to keep the present moment in mind. So even as I'm talking now, it's not so much, I've got to really listen to Mark, it's more of a soft, receptive, reflective understanding that, oh, this is being known. Hearing Mark, comprehending what he's saying, whatever that is that's happening, whatever mood, whatever sensation in the body now, whatever there is of seeing and hearing, is there, can there be a reflective, oh, this is how it is. This is what the mind is knowing. And then sustaining that that recollectedness or that reflectiveness. So the mind isn't forgetting that this moment is being known and this moment is being known. And then this is how it is now. And now it's like this now. Moment by moment by moment. And... The neat thing is we realize it's not a muscular effort to sustain mindful awareness. It's really a wisdom move, not a muscular move, like I've got to try hard to be mindful. It's more about recognizing the relevance of remembering 
this is being known. This is how it is. And that sets up the second factor, which is investigation, or you could say interest. So the sustaining of present moment awareness, moment by moment by moment, allows, it's really a birth, the birth of wisdom. The mind that's interested. First of all, it's a sense like the present moment is relevant. And in particular, that the moment can be understood as a conditional unfolding, like it's lawful. So if I'm having a hard time right now, if my mind is really struggling or heavy, it's lawful. It can be understood, like how did the mind get here? Or if you're feeling really expansive and happy and the heart is not weighed down, how did I get here? How did this heart get here, get to be like this? And really distilling the investigation is able to distill things right to the intention that's present in the mind. Like the intention to identify with being the one who's bored, taking boredom personally. When, when we feel bored, when we feel like I'm bored, we're identified with that feeling of boredom. That was, there was an intention in the mind to get identified. So if we see it, and then we notice, well, what is the effect of taking boredom personally? Or what's the effect of seeing kindness or patience in the mind? So some intentions in our minds are wholesome. They lead to expansive, buoyant, easeful states of mind. And some intentions, some actions, mental actions, physical actions are unwholesome. They lead to the mind, the heart getting entangled and contracted and heavy. So investigation, this is really what we're interested in, cause and effect. But of all the things we could study, the cause and effect, or how things come, how they go, getting interested in how suffering arises, how stress arises, how stress ceases in the mind. That's the most relevant thing. That's what we want to investigate. And it's really around the area of motivation or intention in the mind. Is this intention, like maybe in the first few minutes of this talk, some old tendency of your mind to want to be better than everybody else has arisen. Like, I'm going to be the best Galdarn meditator in the whole world. And now the mind is sort of in this inflated state and is kind of spinning out scenarios where people would see you from afar and think you're special or whatever. you know. And then to just all of a sudden in a moment when mindfulness re-emerges, oh, it's like this. And to get a sense of what just unfolded and whether that was skillful or not, like is whatever the mind just did and is doing, is it leading to a contracted or heavy state? And sometimes it's not so obvious because like in that scenario, there might be some excitement, some juice around that fantasy about you know being... God's gift to humanity or something like that. But if there's enough interest, some sustained even presence, 
you might notice that that dependence on being God's gift to humanity, that dependence, the wanting of it, is stressful. It's entangling for the mind. To have to be somebody. Because wanting, leaning forward into being somebody means we don't like who we are or what is now, right? We can't be enchanted about something, some imagining, without somehow feeling this isn't good enough. This isn't okay. So this is what I mean by investigation. We're really interested in what the mind is doing, and in particular the intention, motivations, dispositions, tendencies that have been triggered, that are arising, and what they might set in motion if the mind allows them to be carried forward. Or otherwise, the mind could restrain itself. Like, okay, that's just a tendency, just a impulse. To, but I don't have to. I could just feel what it's like to want to do that, to want to think that, to want to worry about that, but instead just to feel it is to feel the impulse without identifying with it and acting on it. So the more we investigate, this uh, wisdom begins to develop and the mind begins, this is what we talked about last week, This, the birth of untiring energy as the Buddha describes it. So effort or energy is the third factor. So we go from continuity of mindfulness the presence, the arising of investigation, the capacity to begin to bring wisdom. The wisdom is, is that part of the mind that understands cause and effect. How is it that this happy state of mind has arisen? How is it that this unhappy state of mind has arisen? Because of the tracking, moment-to-moment tracking of mindfulness, now the wisdom function can operate. It can really begin to read or comprehend how it all works. Without the continuity of mindfulness, there's not much comprehension, wise comprehension or investigation. And then energy arises out of that because now the mind begins to intuit or appreciate that there is, uh, there is an appropriate place to apply myself, in a sense, like to put the energy of the mind I understand what to do with my energy. A lot of the times when we're feeling dead to the world or unable to get ourselves off of the couch or unable to do what we need to do, it isn't that we're not capable of effort. It's much more often the case that we don't really understand the value of any of the activities that are available to us. That's why, like, I'll clean the closet, but I'll, it'll just get messy again. So why bother? You know. So there's a, a sense of no. I know this isn't necessarily what we actually believe on the surface, but not too far below the surface, there's a very accepted, or I should say, pervasive sense that life is just hard. It's heavy. We're just getting by. And. We can't really change that. I mean, we can get lucky. We can be inspired for a while. So a lot of the reasons why we hold back is 
the possibility of, of, of applying the mind of um, some application of will, of effort, seems limited or hopeless. Because as soon as we get inspired, we put out a lot of energy. You know, we meet somebody we like. We can put out a lot of energy. Or there's this possibility of getting a job or, you know, getting promoted. Well, we can put out a lot of energy because that initially that idea seems like a savior. Like, oh, if I get that promotion, then I'll earn more. I'll be able to, you know, save and go on this trip or retire early or buy a fancy car or whatever we might think. And that will make all the difference. So human beings consistently demonstrate that they're able to make a lot of effort. But generally, it's all um, tied into greed or fear. And so then inevitably, we end up disappointed or feeling burnt. You know, I'll get through school, I'll get the job, and then I'll be happy. And then we get there, let's say even with the positive scenario, but still, it's not enough. We still, you know, now I gotta keep my job, or now I gotta get ahead of my job. So it's always another thing. So in the first two steps of continuity of mindfulness, investigating, beginning to see the lawfulness of happiness and unhappiness in the mind, directly here in our mind, then this un- the reason this, as the Buddha says, this untiring energy arises is we begin to see that real happiness and real suffering is happening right here. It's not so much about how we're applying ourselves out there, but how we're understanding the mind itself. And the mind, the heart, feels quite inspired, energized to understand more. So like a feedback mechanism, understanding a little inspires the mind to understand more about what? About how the mind works, about happiness and unhappiness, how it comes, how it goes, how expansive, loving, happy, wise states arise, how greedy, aversive, contracted states arise, how they cease. Now, isn't that true? Like if... If you came upon some mysterious way to be happy, I mean really happy, unconditionally, like not about one of the, <clears throat> you would apply yourself to developing that, wouldn't you? We would. I mean, just think about things that don't work, that are hokey, that people spend millions on reading you know, self-help books or... I mean, some of the self-help books, of course, have some wisdom in them. But a lot of the stuff, the whole industry of sort of perfecting ourselves, it's huge. So people are motivated, but often we're looking in the wrong place. So you can imagine that when just through the continuity of mindfulness, investigating the mind, investigating intention in the mind, motivation in the mind, and really seeing what sort of motivations or intentions lead to the release of contraction and what sort of motivations and intentions entangle the mind. And as you begin to make sense of it, as insight grows, 
you can imagine you'd be pretty inspired. Oh, I want to practice more. I want to sit more. You know, throughout history, the people, the men, the women who have gone off to become monks or nuns or serious lay practitioners, what do you think motivates them? It's like they see the possibility when people sit every day and have sat every day for decades. You know, they're not just doing it because they don't have anything better to do, but they've begun to see that it is possible to understand the mind or the heart better. And in understanding the heart and mind better, to know how to cultivate and sustain wholesome, beautiful states of mind and to prevent and abandon unwholesome states of mind. It's just a matter of mastering the mind. Like uh, one of the well-known American uh, <clears throat> monastics, Ajahn Sumedho says, we're not, you know, sometimes you hear that phrase, well, we just should follow the heart. He says, it's not about following the heart, we're actually training the heart. But we're not training the heart to be good, you know, that sort of superficial, like I'm bad, I need to be good, so I'll imitate being good. What we're training the heart to do is understand the causes for happiness and understanding the causes for unhappiness. The rest takes care of itself. It's the ignorance, it's the not clearly, directly knowing the causes for happiness and the causes for unhappiness that makes us sort of just sort of bounce around. So sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're unhappy, but we tend to externalize or to blame out there when we're happy and unhappy. I'm unhappy because you're not treating me the way I want to be treated. Or I'm happy because you smiled at me today. You must like me. You must think I'm worthwhile or something like that. So when we really see that, oh no, it's right here. Energy arises. And that leads, and this is what I want to talk about for a while tonight, the fourth factor, which is rapture, or joyful interest, or delight, joy. So, this is, you know, this is, it's interesting, joy is an interesting topic, because on the one hand, we're really interested in it, and on another hand, a lot of us at least mistrust it. Because, you know, the many times we've had joy in our life, it hasn't really sustained us, hasn't lasted. So then we just feel like, oh, the next one is going to be a setup too. You know, like a tease. Ah. Because this is actually a sign of maturity that we're not interested in any more teases, whatever it might be, getting a new cell phone or getting a new job or a new partner or a new whatever haircut you know this always feels like it is it's sort of exciting when something new happens a new possibility turning over a new leaf we feel okay finally but inevitably we meet with the same old self <laughs> there's a great part of uh, Jack Kerouac's book, um, I'm spacing out the title, On the Road, is that what it was called? And uh, so you might remember those of you who read it, um, so this, if you're not familiar, he was a poet back in the late 50s, early 60s, and a sort of beatnik group that got into Buddhism, 
to some degree. And he was pretty, seemed pretty serious practitioner in his own way. But anyway, he had this idea of getting this job as uh, somebody. They used to have these fire towers in the national forests, and somebody would stay up there in the fire season and just sort of look around <laughs> and then radio in if, if they saw smoke. So he had that in the Cascades in Washington State. And of course he had, he was a pretty idealistic guy. He had, you know, I'll be able to get out there, I'll merge with God or whatever the truth is. And uh, weeks of total and complete bliss. So he had all these idealistic ideas and he wrote in his journal. And what I discovered or what I realized was the old hateful me. <laughs> you know, these, the basically the, the basic persistent personality pattern of self-hatred or aversion, aversiveness. And there it was. So we discover these patterns over and over again. It's actually a great gift because when we see it, we can begin to deconstruct it like, what is the attitude? What is the way of seeing? What are the assumptions that the mind keeps making that keeps setting in motion the self-hatred? And that leads to that sense of betrayal. Like, oh, here I thought this was going to finally fix. I thought that my hateful self was just being in civilization. I was hateful because I was around a bunch of hateful people, you know, or a bunch of confused people. So when I get away from the maddening crowd into the wilderness, well, I kind of did that too uh, in my early 20s. I spent a lot of time in the woods backpacking, rock climbing, and I, it was so astounding. It was about the same time I really was getting into my practice. And one of the first really powerful insights was sitting in the, the most amazing places, far away. I mean, really in obscure places in the high Sierras and Alaska. And, and there's that mind. All of the petty, all of the neurotic, greedy, needy stuff right there. In fact, with more living color because there were no distractions. And it was it was hard to bear. Just that exposure. So when the mind actually sees, begins to see a way and begins to apply itself, this powerful joy begins to arise in the mind. Now there are two causes for rapture. You can have rapture in more ordinary times or ordinary senses, any time your mind gets absorbed. I could take you home and serve you a wonderful meal, and some of you would have rapture. It's like one nice dish after another, nice dishes, pleasant atmosphere, and just the preponderance of pleasant sights and smells and tastes and touches and sights. and So... All those sense delights, the mind would gather itself and it would drop everything else. And that experience of the mind coming together is rapturous, it's joyful. So there's two ways. One is being around really pleasant, engaging sense experiences, you'll notice some delight. We're going to the movie? I've wanted to see that. I mean, even that is a little bit of rapture in the, you know, in a really mundane sense. How exciting. Or you get a present. Remember as a kid getting a present? 
Some, the, the image that comes to my mind when I think of rapture, um, just because I've come across it a few times, nowadays you see it all the time in videos, but whenever you get a, a young mammal, four-legged mammal, you know, and they just, when they're not tired and when they're not feeding, those four-legged mammals, young ones, they just sort of, they've got so much life energy, they don't know what to do with it. They just sort of bound around. Have you seen that? Like goats or cats, kittens or calves, ponies. And it's like that too. When the, when the mind gathers itself in the present moment, the energy really builds. And then that expresses itself. It's a, it's a real joy. The mind, more than anything, the mind is an energy junkie. So when there's a lot of energy, the mind delights in the energy. And it can be a wave of bliss, a tingling of bliss. The spine might straighten. It can be even more powerful uh, visceral, mental and visceral experiences of bliss that come with rapture. And you can even have that in ordinary ways, just doing, being involved in something that for you is really pleasant, really engaging. Because it's not even the activity itself. It's not the wonderful ice cream that you're delighting in. It's that in those moments, the whole world is gone. And there's just that experience. And the energy of the mind is really collecting. It's not scattered and dissipated. It's really... So there's a real brightness, aliveness. And that's what we mean by joyful interest. Now... And from a spiritual sense, in a much more powerful and persistent way, we can get rapture not so much from the mind being dependent on my favorite kind of ice cream or just being around the people I want to be around and nobody else or you know, this nice experience or that nice experience, but from what we call renunciation or seclusion. So we... It's the same principle where the mind is gathering itself, except now the mind is learning how to gather itself not based on some external experience like having everything I want or a lot of pleasant experience, but it's gathering itself because it, it has wisdom. It understands the value of putting down the world. So like the Buddha for example, offers us this practice of mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of body or mindfulness of hearing. These are the three of the anchors we use a lot or mindfulness of loving kindness, the feeling, the actual feeling of loving kindness. So you could take up one of these things, one of these themes, let's call them, and you could train your mind to gather itself the energy of the mind to gather itself just with that theme, which means you have to let go of the past. You can't be conceiving of the past, something you did before, and being fully present with that theme. You can't be conceiving of the future. You can't be conceiving of whether you're doing a good job at the theme or a bad job meditating. So any conception is not gathering with that theme. So if you're going to be with the breath, you have to let go of everything else. So when you have the continuity of awareness with the breath, 
the mind will not only be aware of the breath, the mind is also going to, or the attention is also going to be aware of what it is for the mind to be fully gathered or unified. And the experience of a unified mind is beautiful. It's, it's a beauty that no mind can mistake. And every mind in its own particular way will delight in that beauty. And we call that rapture. Rapture in a spiritual sense is the mind delighting in the unification of mind. So the mind has been gathered because we've trained it to do that. We've trained the mind to drop the world of this and that, me and you, good and bad, past and future, and it's gathered in a relaxed, continuous way with the sensations of the breath or with hearing, with just feeling the sensations of the body or feeling the quality of love in the heart. So there are many themes. These are just four common themes used in Buddhist meditation practice. Many other themes, though. But pretty much they all relate to those four. I mean, there are different flavors of love, gratitude, forgiveness, compassion, joy, equanimity. There are different sort of sensory experiences like bodily, body, body-based experiences that you can use. <clears throat> but it's basically taking some aspect of the body or some wholesome aspect of the mind and gathering the quality of attention there and beginning to notice the gathering itself. So there's the object we're paying attention to and then there's the mind that's gathering itself as it pays attention to that exclusively or wholeheartedly. And so when when we begin to experience some rapture, initially it might be just a sense of, I mentioned this I think a couple of weeks ago, just a sense of uh, literally being held. The body, the mind is like, sometimes we use the word grounded. But in deeper states of concentration, it's more than just the feeling of being centered or grounded. It's literally like nothing wants to move. You know, the squirming in the body that we sometimes have when we're sitting, the body just doesn't want to move. Not that you can't move, but the body's really content being still. And the same with the mind. The mind, the attention, I should say, that part of the mind that attends to the experience, it's wrapped. It's like, but it's not like attention, like, I better not move or I'll be in trouble. It's like, it doesn't want to move. Sometimes, you know, you get a little of this in more mundane ways, just reading a good novel and you're in an exciting part and it's like the mind is just there, it's wrapped. It's held in the experience. So we can do this, we can train the mind to do this. And one of the things, as that energy is building, one of the first signs of rapture is just like the spine naturally like not neurotically, oh, I should sit up straight, but just the spine wants to be straight. Now, the spine is never straight. You know, there are natural curves in the spine. But just that sense of alignment and integrity of the body, of the spine, it just starts to, it's like, it wants to be upright. It wants to be right in the middle. And even the sense of the hair, like lifting on the skin, you can sort of feel that. Or 
the hair on the head. Not that it actually moves, but there's just an energetic, like a brightness that pervades, begins to pervade the whole body. It might start in a particular place, but it's almost like the body's felt more as a like an inner light bulb, and there's sort of a radiation of energy out. So that's some of the first visceral uh, manifestations of rapture. And then it can get more pronounced, like literal, literal waves of bliss that roll through the body and mind, or feelings of being really light, or feelings of dropping. Like if you're walking and you have rapture, like things are a little bit elastic, not solid. So there's all kinds of unusual, I guess, experiences that come when the mind is really gathered and joyfully present, not dissipated, not scattered. I mean, this is the real disease of ordinary existence, is the dissipation, superficiality, dispersion of the mind, of the heart, energy. It's just, like we say, right? We say, I'm all over the place. And it's literally true. (laughs) The mind's a mess. It isn't, it has no integrity, no kind of presence. So this presence happens when the mind naturally finds something worthy of devotion. And what is worthy of devotion? It is this investigation of the present moment. Like, so in Buddhism, I, I think I might have said this, I don't know if it was Sunday night, but a couple of weeks ago, you know, this is the one thing that's actually worthy of real devotion. Putting our heads, you know, in the east, they're really into bowing. We do that sometimes, even here at the center. Some people do it at the center, because it's, it's a real big part of the Buddhist tradition, doing bows or anjali. But, When we do that, what we're really bowing down to, what we're really showing signs of respect for, gratitude for, is the value of investigation, the value of insight. Like, oh, and what are we, I mean, it's the insight into how real happiness, real freedom, it's possible. And suffering is avoidable. That's a very enlivening realization as we begin to sense that truth or that possibility. And so that's what the mind is gathering around. This activity, it's like becoming a devotee. We literally belong to a cult. It's the cult of paying attention to the way it is because it works. It really helps. (laughs) It's not like, uh, you know, what did you say? Yeah. Yeah, it. I mean, it really has. It does. It does lead to change. Now, of course, you don't want to believe me because I'm saying that. You wanna. Uh, you wanna find this feedback mechanism in your own heart, like as you figure it out, as you intuit the possibility of becoming wiser, knowing how to handle having a mind, basically you'll feel energized and that energy will lead to rapture. You'll feel a natural devotion to the practice. You'll want to sit. You'll want to practice informally through the day. It won't feel like a big burden. And when you forget it, as you will, and get distracted, when you come back, you'll be grateful for coming back. 
I'm so glad I'm now aware again. You know, I was lost, but now I'm found. <laughs> like that Amazing Grace lyric goes. It's really inspiring for us. There's some traditional, um, well, two, two things I want to mention before I open it up for discussion. One, in the tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, they talk about the corruptions of insight, sometimes it's called. So as you begin to experience rapture, as you set in motion the first four of the seven factors of awakening, mindfulness, continuity of mindfulness, investigation, and in in particular we're investigating the causes and conditions for the arising of peace or release, and the causes and conditions for the arising of contraction or greed, anger, and delusion. And then the energy, like the heart is now willing to apply itself to what it's understanding. Like, oh, I can do this. This is good to do. I'm happy to do this. I've been looking for something to dig into, something that delivers. And then that builds to rapture. And then just to remind you, and we'll get these and get here in the weeks ahead, tranquility, concentration or stillness, and equanimity. Those are the last three of the factors. And they keep building on themselves. So it's not like you end with equanimity, but the equanimity supports the continuity of mindfulness, right? More continuity of mindfulness, investigation's easier. Because investigation ultimately isn't you going out and investigating. It's more kicking back in the space of awareness and letting the show present itself. And in that presentation of this and that coming and going, the mind understands how it is that stress arises, how it is that the release of stress arises, and on and on. So it's like a feedback mechanism. So uh, when the more rapture there is, the more of this joy, it's so refreshing that that joy, that happiness is so refreshing, the mind realizes that I don't need anything else. It begins this process of realizing I don't need to go anywhere. I don't need to attain anything. So the beginning of that realization is what we call tranquility, that ease or relaxation of the heart. Because the whole where we've gotten with the continuity of mindfulness investigation and application of effort and rapture is like, uh, Joseph mentions this in his chapter, understanding what is and what is not the path. That's what gets clarified here, right? Oh, it's not about being wealthy. It's not about having more and more people like me or think I'm special. That's not what it's about. What is it about? It's about deepening this understanding of what causes the mind to get tight and what allows the mind to release. Basically, not taking it personally. But those are just words. We have to see it through the process of investigation in our own mind, in our own heart. So the release of tranquility is like, ah, I don't need to be neurotically needing to become somebody else which allows the mind to become even more still and peaceful and more equanimous. So the imperfection of insight or the corruption of insight is when we take the joy of rapture personally. Right? So we're not 
the joy starts to arise, right? And because it's so pleasant, we think, I don't have to practice. So we stop the continuity of mindfulness and we stop, most importantly, we stop investigating. We stop recognizing, okay, this is just joy being known. What are the causes? And we start, I'm joyful. This is what I've always wanted. So precisely because we've been practicing well, we lose it because we get the results that naturally arises from the continuity of practice, but the the fruits of that practice confuses the mind. We take it personally and we lose our practice for a while. And this is an unavoidable place. It's hard when we start experiencing more joy, happiness, ease, the fruits of being mindful, the old ego habits kick in and we think, I'm special. I hope they notice. (laughs) Maybe I should remind them. (laughs) You know, and we try to convert other people. That's a telltale sign. This is the best. (laughs) Because we don't know what to do with the joy. Well, wisdom knows what to do with joy. Mindfulness knows what to do with joy. It's just mindfulness being known. That's what mindfulness knows. And investigation wants to understand cause and effect. That's what it does. Wisdom always is interested in cause and effect. Okay, well, can there be more refined joy? Yeah, this is great. But can it be beautiful? more refined, more subtle, more pervasive, more deep? So that there's no place in the body and the mind that's not affected by the joy. It's pervasive everywhere filling the entire space of the body and mind. So this is the key when we're experiencing the natural fruits of the continuity of practice that we don't forget to keep practicing. But we will. (laughs) Guarantee it. We will. We'll fall on our face. We'll get confused. If we don't have support, we may, you know, lose it for a long time even. But eventually, it will dawn on us that I'm not happy anymore. (laughs) And we'll start thinking, well, what, what was it that I did before? <laughs> yeah, how did that happen? Right? We'll start the mindfulness and investigation and hopefully get some energy going again. Wholeheartedness. One word that's used in the tradition is ardor, ardent, which has a heartful feeling to it, like really putting our heart into it, not holding back. This is what I was built to do. This is what it's all about. That kind of heartfulness. That's the effort that we're talking about here. And that's what makes everything happen. This practice can't be superficial. We have to give it our all. Because if we don't give it our all, we tend to fall back into habit energy. And habit energy is that habit energy of dispersal and scattered and superficiality. That's the pervasive habit of the mind. So we'll pick it up again in the next couple of weeks, but... We have about 11 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people in the group. Any questions, of course, you have about what I've said tonight or examples from your own practice that come to mind? Your own experiences with rapture? Yeah, Wendy. Yeah. Well, intention is nature. It isn't self. But and and just in Buddhist psychology, nothing happens without intention. Nothing happens in the mind. There's no thought, word, or action, or 
by very definition, any thought, word, or action arises from intention. So, um, there's a force in the mind, sankara. There's a force in the mind. It starts like as a disposition or a tendency that then something triggers that. It takes birth and unless it's restrained, it will lead to a thought or speech or action. And so you're right in the sense that you don't do that ultimately. Although from a normal point of view, it seems like I want to, like that attachment to boredom, for example, it's like I'm bored. Somehow the habit of the mind is to claim the boredom as mine. That's It's me who's bored. So that's what I meant by the identification. It's the the mind identifying with the qualities that are present there in the mind. Same with joy. But that intention can be seen. The intention to identify with the boredom, to personalize it, and then therefore to want to do something because I'm bored, like to do something different because I'm bored, I'm going to go home, I'm bored. We can restrain ourselves when the mind understands that's just boredom, that's just the identification with the boredom. I don't. I can just let that be. It may be unpleasant. It may be unsettling to relax, which is the alternative with the boredom. Either to relax with it, or if I don't want to relax with it, I can act on it. So a lot of the times when we act on emotion or act on mind states, it's because it doesn't feel right to relax with them, to let them be, because they're unpleasant. Boredom is an unpleasant state to relax with. So by acting on it, like turning the channel or getting another magazine or whatever we might do when we're bored, it's a way, it seems like, it's not a very effective way, but it seems to us in the moment to be an effective way to avoid the yucky feeling of boredom. Now, we're not conscious we're doing that. We just feel like it's rational. Like, this magazine really is boring. This one might be more exciting. And uh, so it just feels like I'm taking care of myself. But if the mind's more subtle, if the investigation is better, we'll begin to see what's more subtle, like the mind's dependence, like, or the mind's fear of feeling the unpleasantness of boredom. Oh, that's okay to feel this unpleasantness. Is it dangerous to feel the unpleasantness of boredom or the unpleasantness of loneliness or the unpleasantness of embarrassment of feeling like I'm not good enough? See, I could, like, if, I, if that emotion has been triggered in me right now, I could either try to wow you with something wise or I could just relax with the feeling that, well, maybe I'm not good enough. And it's, it's so great to have that option, not to have to do anything just because I, I have this tendency to, to wonder whether I'm good enough, but I don't have to act on it. And that's what that investigation allows. It's sort of, because I'm beginning to learn that, oh yeah, when I neurotically act on that feeling of not being good enough by trying to get people to like me so that I feel better about who I am, when I notice that, that's always stressful. It, it encouraged me to try another way. Or maybe I'll just feel it instead of acting on it. 
Yeah, thanks, Wendy, for bringing that up. Yeah, I don't know your name. Tanya. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have a protein bar. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's really good. And there's a shadow. There's a shadow to thinking that the new car, the new job is the ticket. That shadow is attachment to the world, which is ephemeral, keeps changing. We can't, so we'll get burned there. But we also get burned with nihilism, thinking that the world isn't worth grasping and then sliding into nihilism. Not only isn't it worth grasping, but it's actually appropriate to push it away. That also is stressful. That the Buddha, in a very uh, poignant way, you know, he got into very strict asceticism when he was starting out in his practice. And he rejected it. He said, that's not the way. Nihilism is not the way. And his first teaching was sort of rejecting both, thinking that sense pleasure is the way. He rejected that's not the way. And nihilism is the way. No, that's not the way. So it's neither of those. And so that's the whole point of investigation. We're not just seeing that these sense experience aren't an end in themselves. We're also seeing the, uh, the way to real release. There is a way to release the heart's release, the heart's unshakable release, as it's talked about in Buddhism. But that way is not through attaining something, nor from getting rid of anything, or getting any rid of anything except getting rid of attachment. So it's not about having to get rid of the world, like, I don't want to be alive. You know, I don't want to be sensitive anymore. We don't have to get rid of our life or our sensitivity in order to be free. That's the idea. In fact, one of the nice things about having a busy, entangled life on the surface, like being a parent or being somebody who cares about the world and justice, is it's a great testing place for our practice. Because if our practice is dependent on being in the woods all alone, then that's not a, I mean, it may be better than what it would be otherwise, but it's not certainly an end because it's dependent. It's a con, any happiness or any ease that we're experiencing is dependent on nobody bothering me. And if somebody bothers me, then I lose my happiness. But what we're really interested in is a happiness that can't be shook, can't be lost. So then when they, you know, they make you the head of a meditation center or they, you, you become uh, an activist or you get pregnant and have kids or you fall in love or whatever, get promoted. Then, like, well, what does freedom look like here? What is that ease and that wisdom and that love, that unconditional love? How does it express itself? How does it manifest with this set of responsibilities or this set of responsibilities? And it should be nimble no matter the conditions. That's, that's what we're looking for. And so that's why one of the nice things about uh, we have to balance the seeing, the limitations of sense experience with how it is that real joy, persistent joy can arise in the heart and ease, tranquility. These beautiful states aren't de- dependent on having a beautiful home or Haagen-Dazs or 
anything like that. So we have to, and we don't have to give those things up, but it's, it is nice to give them up temporarily so we get a sense of any dependence the mind has on them. So the only thing bad about having a nice iPhone 5 or 6 now, are they up to, is if we're going to suffer when it falls or breaks, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we don't have to suffer because mine will suffer when our cell phones... But the, you know, but the point is, it's like the problem with beautiful experiences or beautiful sense objects that we may fall into our laps because we're fortunate isn't that they're bad. They're not dangerous in and of themselves, but the attachment and, and mental dependence on them same with love, like relationships and friendships. The problem isn't falling in love. The problem is if we think that the beauty of our love for this person is uh, something we can count on. So we want to receive it as something that's very dynamic and precious and will last for a while, but will inevitably change. I mean, either it will last forever until one of us dies, or it will fall away sooner. But it won't last forever. Nothing does. So we want a happiness that's not conditioned on these things. We need to leave it here at C30. So we'll just take a few seconds. Just enough time for a breath or two together. Feel free to let go of the words. No need to feel like you have to hold on to everything. sense of gratitude for these wonderful ancient teachings, grateful for all the women, all the men who in their busy lives did their practice as best they could, realized some real fruits from their practice and shared it. And generation by generation, now we're the recipients of these wise practical teachings. Now it's our turn in our busy lives as best we can cultivate these seven factors, this path of awakening, not only for our own well-being, but to become causes for real peace and freedom from suffering in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.